Welcome to Calvary Chapel Armo's weekly verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Join us now as Jim Hyatt leads us through Romans chapter 13, teaching us about submission to those appointed over us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you've gathered us here this morning. Father, we are so thankful that you have prepared our hearts and our minds and that we've had this opportunity to worship you and to praise you and to thank you for everything that you've done in our lives and that you continue to do in our lives. And we pray, Father, that we might continue to worship you this morning as we go through your word and you allow it to pour into our lives and that we might be able to take this word and use it for you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning we're going to go through Romans chapter 13. Prayerfully, we're going to go through Romans chapter 13. Last week, David um, asked me if I'd sit in for him and go through Romans chapter 13. He asked me Sunday, and immediately something else hit my mind. If I'm going to teach on Romans chapter 13, I have to go through some other verses just to give it some clarity of exactly what God's trying to say to us. God doesn't say things to us in Scripture without giving us examples in Scripture of exactly how to do it. So let's look at uh, Romans 13 really quickly. Then we'll go to an example, and then we'll come back and examine it a little bit, okay? In Romans chapter 13, it says this. No, it doesn't say that. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Yep, it says that. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon them for themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. Amen? Amen. That's pretty much the point of chapter 13. And then when I read that, I kind of chuckled to myself. I think uh, David may have been thinking, I'm going to give this to Jim to teach because... He's an authority of the government. I think God gave it to me because I struggle in this area of my life. Submitting. I struggle with this. If you have any doubts about that, look over there. Pastor David. I struggle with submitting. And I pray that you don't struggle as much as I do, but kind of think you might. I think a lot of us have that problem. Do me a favor, turn in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Do it quickly because I have to go through 1 Samuel, the first chapter of 2 Samuel. I don't have much time to do it. Yeah, so 32 chapters before I get to Romans 13. Ready? It says here that the Philistines were gathered their armies for battle. Who were they going to do battle against? Israel. 
the Philistines are ready. In verse 4 of 17, it says, The champion came out from the armies, and the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in span. Uh-oh. You remember Goliath, right? You've heard this story. Even if you haven't been a, uh, a scholar reading through Scripture over and over again, you know who Goliath is. Remember David? verse 31 it says 32 I'm sorry it says David said to Saul let no man's heart fail on the account of him your servant will go and fight the Philistine so the 16 year old kid says to the king don't let anyone fear I'll go take care of it I'll go fight the giant Saul's initial reaction is probably like hmm but then he changes his mind in verse 37, Saul says to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Go, you 16-year-old child. May the Lord be with you. You go and slay that giant, or at least buy us some time. Might be going through his head. But in verse 50, we see that David prevailed. And it says that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and he killed him. Now people took notice of David. Saul certainly did. The people of Israel certainly did. But more importantly, the king of Israel took notice. And over in chapter 18, it says this in verse 5, So David went out wherever Saul sent him. David became Saul's, King Saul's servant. Correct? And David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David gets recognized by the king and he is put in a position of authority over the armies. And almost immediately, the people of Israel and the other servants in the army were pleased by this sight. This is a man that we can stand with. This is a man that we can work for. This is a man that we can serve. In verse 6, said, then it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistines, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. And the woman sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh where the problem starts. Has David done anything wrong? No. David served with pleasure under the king. But people recognize that David was the conqueror here. David had done what Israel needed, and he conquered the Philistines. He killed 10,000. Well, you know, in the king, he killed a couple thousand too, but David killed 10,000. And the king recognized it immediately. And thought to himself, I have to take care of this problem. Back up to 18 verse 10, it says, Now it came about in the next day that an evil spirit came upon them mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of his house, while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and the spear was in Saul's hand. Harp in one hand, spear in the other. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall 
but David escaped. That's the first time that Saul tried to kill David. I did a little bit of a poll, and I'll do one here. How many times do you think that Saul tried to kill David? Raise your hand if you think it's between one and two times. Raise your hand if you think it's between one and five times. Raise your hand if you think it's between one and 12 times. It's 12. 12 times the king tried to kill David. If you look through it real quick, so in chapter 18, he tried to kill him twice. I just told you about the first one, and the second one was in verse 17, where he sent him out to war thinking, I'm going to send him out in a battle against so many that he has to come back dead. In verse 19, he tries to kill him eight times. In verse 1, he told Jonathan to, uh, to do it. In verse 10, in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. In chapter 19, verse 10, he tries to kill him two more times by other people's hands. In 15, he sends messengers to kill him. In 20, he sends messengers again. And then in 21, he sends three more sets of messengers to kill him until Saul finally says, I'll just go and do it myself. So we're up to 10 times so far. If you flip all the way over to chapter 23 in verse 15, is the 11th time that Saul tries to kill him. So the king has tried to kill a servant 11 times up to this point. What's David's response? Every single time, it's to stay out of the king's way. The king is the king, and he's the servant of the Lord over the people. I will stay away. Now, the Lord doesn't say anything in Scripture about you must stand there while the king rams you with a spear. So he does. He gets out of the way. He never disturbs the people, and he never gets in the king's way. He steps back. This is not my position. This is not my responsibility. Regardless of who this man is or what his actions are, it is not my responsibility. David is so humble about this that I am utterly amazed. In chapter 24, David's hiding in a cave, and you know that, if you know the story, that the king comes to kill him again with his men, and he gathers his men, and King Saul has to go relieve himself. So he goes over to the side by himself to relieve himself, and right behind him in a cave is where David and his men are hiding. Right behind him. David sees him. His men say, hey, this is our opportunity. David says, whoa, this is our opportunity for nothing. And I'm going to send a message. So David sneaks over to the mouth of the cave and he snips his robe. That's all he does. He snips his robe. Send a message. Hey, leave me alone. I'm here. I can get you. I'm close. David humbles himself after and he repents for having done that. It's a matter of the heart towards the king. He's probably had enough and I certainly would have enough after 11 attempted murders all my life. That's all that David does, snips that robe, and he feels guilty for having done it. 
because he hasn't served the Lord appropriately in the manner of the man that's appointed over him and over the people of Israel. I wish I had that kind of heart, and I pray that I draw closer to that kind of heart. In verse 25, Samuel dies. In 26, it's the 12th time that Saul tries to kill David, and it says in verse 2, And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 of his chosen of Israel to search for David in the wilderness. That's the 12th time he goes out and tries to do it, tries to kill him, put him to death. And he doesn't. Eventually, God takes Saul's life, right? You know how the story ends. Saul goes into battle again, and he loses. And Saul winds up falling on his sword in chapter 31 and dies. This is how seriously David takes the position of the king. Not how seriously he takes Saul, but this is how seriously David takes the position of king. God's appointed over Israel. Flipping your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1. This man comes out of the battle, says he comes from out of the battle, and he speaks to David. He gives him the report that Saul is dead. And in verse 5 it says, So David said to the young man, who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount uh, Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he he saw me, and he called to me, and I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, and I said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him, and I killed him. David was enraged at that news. Not, he was sad by the news that Saul had died and his friend Jonathan, but he was enraged at the news that this man would take his hand and end the life of God's appointed. David took vengeance upon him and sent one of his men to end that young man's life. That young man did not have the same mind or heart that David did because he thought that this would be appropriate to put the man he thought to be in charge. You know, if I take Saul out, David will be in charge. The funny thing is, it was a lie. The man told a lie to David. If you flip back over to chapter 31 in 1 Samuel, you'll see that Saul did ask somebody to help him. David tells his arm bearer, says, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise the uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his arm bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. Saul took his own life. But this other man thought, I will go give a report to who will be king, at least in his perception, to who will be king, and maybe I'll get some sort of appointment out of it. Maybe I'll get something out of it. Not thinking about who they were serving, 
God. A lot of times in our lives, we lose focus on that, about exactly who we're serving. Sometimes we get focused just on the individual, the man in front of us. And that's not good. Our eyes always have to be on the Lord. I work for the sheriff's department. I submit to a lot of people there, from the sheriff on down to my corporal. There are many who are appointed over me. And sometimes it's a struggle, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes it's a struggle. And sometimes I lose focus on exactly what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And God is so gracious that from time to time, he sets me aside and he says, hey, what exactly is it that we're doing here? I believe that I have a purpose in working for the sheriff's department. Certainly it is to be a deputy. But then it's also to minister to the people that God allows to be around me. And I can't be a very good minister if I'm not serving the Lord appropriately. And I can't be a very good minister to those people if I'm not serving under the people who are appointed over me. Because God got, put them there. David was submissive to God first and then to God's appointed. It's important to think of it like that. First, I am submissive to God and then to God's appointed. I didn't say man. David is not submissive to man, and God doesn't command you to be submissive to man. He commands you to be submissive to his appointed. I didn't even say a good man, because Saul doesn't seem to be a very good man, does he? How many of you serve under somebody who you would probably or have served under somebody who, in the government or in your job who doesn't seem like a very good person? I imagine a large number of you have at some point in your life served somebody who is not a good person. Yet God put them in our path, not to circumvent them. This scripture makes it abundantly clear. God appointed them. But David understood what God had done and how he had placed it. Turn back to Romans chapter 13 just so we can see it. And this isn't new news, as you can see, because we just went through a lengthy portion of the Old Testament to see the point here. Romans 13, chapter 1. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. There, half a sentence. Sums it all up for us, doesn't it? In the Greek, every person means every person. All of us. I have a little bit of position, a little bit of authority with the job that I have. I'm a sheriff's deputy. I have authority over the entire county. The sheriff gave it to me. But I have tons and tons and tons of people who I need to submit to, including you, the people who live in the county. subject themselves. Titus 3.1 says this, reminding them to be subject to the rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, or to be, not to be negative or evil to anyone, but to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So not only do I need to serve under this person, 
I need to be good and gentle and kind at the same time. Well, I'll submit, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And if I'm not going to be happy about it, everybody's going to know that I'm not happy about it. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I'll do it, but only because I have to. Not the right heart, is it? I admit it happens to me from time to time. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to me, usually through my wife. So, is that the right heart? Is that how you're serving the Lord in this particular situation? Second Peter 2 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether a king, whether as to a king, as the one in authority, or to governors, as set by him for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such, <clears throat> for such is the will of God, that by doing it, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So there is a purpose behind our actions, our humble actions, before that, those who are appointed above us, even if we don't like them. I hate to talk about politics and church. I think the two don't go along together. But I know this for a fact. There are a number of people in here who didn't like the last regime in our American government. I understand. And we've had a lot of conversation about those over the past couple of years, and most of them weren't good. There's a problem there. And I raise my hand, I participated in some of those conversations. So if we're having conversations that are negative to that person that's appointed over us, what's that doing to our heart? I need to repent because I know maybe that my wife didn't particularly like that president. I don't want to point at anybody else, so I had to point at you. Greg would get upset if I pointed it at him. <laughs> so if Kim didn't like that particular person, and I came home after a long day's work, and I started fussing at her over the policies and the procedures that that man who was appointed over me set, what am I doing to my wife's heart? I'm dragging her down with me. And her job, and she's so much better at it than me, is to serve him peaceably, gently, and showing consideration. Was I helping her? No. I can disagree humbly, can't I? I don't always show it, but there is an appropriate way to do that. Not name-calling, not slandering, pointing out maybe that this policy might be able to be accomplished a little bit in a better way. And if that person appointed over me chooses not to do that, mine is to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. If that's the way you see fit, that's the way we go. So every person is to be subject to the governing authorities or to every human institution. 
Certainly we're to be subject to God, but also to who God has appointed over us. David understood it, and he understood it well. He wasn't serving Saul. He was serving God's appointed, serving the position, not necessarily the man. Many of you have been in the military, and many of you know the phrase, if you don't respect the man, you better respect the position and the authority that comes along with it. Respect the rank. And it works well in the military. It has to work well because we have to be able to serve as one. And the military is one great big institution. So is the Christian institution. It's huge. And we all need to submit so God can guide us in one direction. If he allowed somebody appointed above us who we don't like, he's got a plan and a purpose for it whether we like it or not at the particular moment. I understand that there's a lot of people particularly happy now about the way and the direction that we're going. God has a plan in that too, but he's had a plan in the past eight years, 800 years, 8,000 years, 8 million years for our lives and what's going on today and tomorrow. The rest of verse 1 says, I'm doing well, aren't I? For there's no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. There's a period at the end of that. For, those who are, <clears throat> for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Ephesians 11, 1.11 says, We have obtained an inheritance in having been predestined, all of us, according to His purpose, that is God's purpose, who works things after the counsel of his will. God think, does things that he sees fit for his purpose, not that we'll be happy every single day. We should be excited every single day that we have a purpose in his plan, not that it's going really well for us every moment of every day, because it won't. You might ask yourself, well, if God appointed this person above me, and he's not a really easygoing person, why did God appoint him? Ephesians 1.12 gives us the answer. It says, to the end that we who were the first hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So we're to submit under these people to glorify God period. That's our purpose, to glorify God in all that we do, regardless of who is appointed above us. Verse 2 in Romans 13 says, therefore, whoever resists authority, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. I don't think that needs a whole lot of clarification. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, that could be me, has opposed the ordinance of God. I have fallen short. And they will have, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It's not a new thought. First Peter <clears throat> 2 says, 
Servants must be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of consciousness towards God, a person bears upon the sorrows when suffering unjustly. We're supposed to serve under all of them. In verse 3, it says, For rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. I know as a sheriff's deputy, I've never been sitting around thinking, geez, I really hope somebody passes me doing two miles under the speed limit so I can go and yell at them. But it's funny, anytime I get behind somebody or I'm sitting on the side of the road, people look at me like, what am I doing? What's he looking at me for? I'm waving, hi, have a nice day. <laughs> what were you doing five minutes ago that you need to be worried about me waving, hi, how are you doing? I don't understand that. Why is your conscience heavy about simply seeing me? I can only speculate. I see parents, you'll go into a store to go buy lunch or go in and buy a snack or do something while you're working there. Go into Walmart and you see parents with children. And do you know what they say to us? to their kids when they see us? Watch out, I'll have him arrest you. <laughs> Thanks for great parenting and putting the fear of law enforcement into your child's life. How does that happen? Why, why should your child fear me? He's doing nothing wrong. You're doing some bad parenting there. Maybe I should give you a ticket. <laughs> There's no ticket for that, though. No, don't worry. Daniel, don't punch your father in the arm. If you are doing right, you have no reason to fear those who are appointed over you, the authorities. Trust me, we are not out looking for good people doing good things to punish them for it. That's not what we're there for, and we don't do that. We're not looking for that. Verse 4 says, it's a minister of God for you, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. If you do what is evil, be afraid. Justly so. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings a wrath on the one who practices evil. That's right. So when I'm sitting on the side of the road in the school zone watching the construction go on with the men with the signs out and the school lights flashing, let's say 40 miles an hour, please, and you come ripping by me at 97 miles an hour, you should have fear. And plenty of it. Because when I walk up to your car and you say, what did I do? I said, 97 in the back of my car, please. You should have some fear. What did I do? Well, 35 miles over the speed limit. You put those construction men's lives in jeopardy. My kids go to that school. Oh, so you put your kids' lives in jeopardy as well. Please get in the back of the car. You should have some fear, a healthy fear of what might come down if you refuse to follow those who are pointed over you. Those who are pointed over you put these white rectangle signs in the middle of the road with a number in the middle of it. Don't go faster than that. Certainly don't go 35 miles over that. But it says right here, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. 
because God's appointed, will address it. I'm making light of something of speeding here. If you fail to be kind, if you fail to be humble, if you fail to be peaceable to those appointed over you, it appears that we are doing evil. And we'll have to answer for that. I know I have a lot to answer for, but I know that today I want to change my heart and better it. Not just for myself, but for the people I'm serving under and for God and his kingdom that will shine as a better light. It was interesting. I had a comment yesterday, and I didn't even realize it. My wife said, you had a really nice comment today. I said, what's that? Somebody, I, I did a wedding yesterday with a, it was a police officer who got married, a sheriff's deputy who got married. And um, this girl walked up to me a couple of days ago and said, you're doing the wedding? And I said, I am. You're ordained? I said, I am. Why is that so funny? She goes, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> I said, why not? She goes, I, I don't believe it. So she showed up to the wedding, and after the wedding, she said, you know, I told your husband the other day, I didn't believe he was, I said, now I get it. She said, how? Well, I thought about it for a little while. I never hear your husband cuss. Good. I never hear your husband talk bad about people, and I never hear your husband say things that aren't truthful about people. Now I believe it. She didn't believe it at first because she hadn't thought about it, but once she started thinking about my behavior, she believed it. And I thought, thank you, Jesus, because that's not of Jim Hyatt. Really, it's not. Because the things that go on in my mind are not healthy all the time either. That's sassa rasa 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 Verse 5. I'm in big trouble. Verse 5. Therefore it, is, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. If you don't want to be toiling in your mind when you lay in bed at night, serve with humility. Think before we let things fly out of our mouths. In verse 6, it says, because, <clears throat> because of this, you, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to who custom is, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, and owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Yeah, God actually said it. We have to pay our taxes. Sorry. So I know some of you who are delaying until the last day to file your taxes, still have to file them. And render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Amen? This isn't a new ordinance in here not to have a loan. It is a calling that tells us that if we do take a loan, that we need to pay it in a timely manner. In Deuteronomy, it actually outlines a biblical way to have a loan and to take a loan and to repay it. What they are saying here is be loving have the right heart as you're paying back what that person has loaned to you. How many of you have taken a loan out and then are begrudging every month as you have to write the check? 
to give back what you took out. Some of us are because we are terrible financiers. We're Americans. We're terrible at it. We take and take and take and take and take so we can survive on what we think to survive is. But I really needed this pretty fancy shirt. And I had a godly purpose because I needed this fancy shirt so I could stand up here and teach in front of you. So. But now I've got to pay Kohl's back the $35 it took me to get it. Hopefully I won't write that check begrudgingly. Or my wife won't, who actually pays the bills. Verse 8 says, Oh, nothing to anyone except for love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it seems here that Paul shifted gears away from submission to those appointed over you into something completely different. And if it seems like that to you, you're not correct. This is how we're to treat and think of people who are appointed over us. We're not to sin against them either. We sin against God and God alone, but do not sin against those people who are appointed over you. Paul takes these four of the Ten Commandments and he sums them up. So don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, and don't covenant. And he sums them up into love one another. Well, Paul is speaking to us on a very specific subject here. So we're actually supposed to treat those people who are appointed over us in a loving fashion, in a loving manner. That's the heart we're supposed to have over our bosses, over our mayors, our senators, our governors, our presidents, or anyone else who is appointed over us. Now, it's okay to have a better idea. It's even okay to present a better idea. It's the manner in which we're presenting that better idea to that person appointed over us. And when they say no, what's our reaction? Is our reaction to turn around and stomp our feet as we leave? Or is our reaction to say, yes, sir, that's the way we're going to go. I hear you. I'll take your orders and I'll march forward with them. That's what Scripture is telling us to do. That's the heart Scripture is telling us to have. Verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, period. Do this knowing that the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Let me read that again, please. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now, salvation is near to us in that we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing in drunkenness, not in a sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. I was having a conversation about this verse or these verses with somebody, and they misinterpreted it to believe that Paul's talking to unbelievers. He is not. 
He is talking to believers. And it kind of hit me. Do this knowing that the time is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. What do you think he's saying there? He's saying that we have fallen asleep. He's saying that we know these words, but we're not following them. He says that we know the God that we are to serve with an open heart, and we're not doing it that way. Paul's saying, stop it. Stop it. Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. And when he arrives, how do you want him to see you? I know this isn't the way I want him to see me. I want him to see a better me, a better servant, a more humble guy, a more submissive guy, a guy who worships him more and has his desires on my life in the forefront rather than my desires for my life. That's what Paul's saying here. Do this knowing that the time has already the hour to awaken from your sleep, knowing <clears throat> for now salvation is nearer that we, than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near, the day when he will arrive. Christ Jesus riding on the clouds. And in verse 14 it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's put off all of that stuff, especially, especially concerning those whom, who we're serving. So no matter what you think about those who are appointed over you, like them or not, we're to submit to them always. Always as a child should. Struggle like most of us, but continue to struggle. And continue to uh, do better at it. In Ephesians 1, verse 12, it says that we're to serve according to his purpose after the counsel of his will. While we're serving other people, those other leaders that are appointed above us, submit to them completely up to the point where God's will ends. Don't let anybody ask you or to submit to something that is outside of God's will or God's plan. Something that's opposing to Scripture. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for allowing us to serve you. And Father, we're thankful for the opportunities you bring to our hearts and to our minds in the areas that we fall short, fall short of you. So we pray this morning, Father, that you might uh, encourage us, make us a little bit more aware of areas we can improve our lives, especially in submission, that clearly you call all of us to do. Father, that we might become better servants and that your kingdom might grow because of it. In Jesus' name.
thank you for listening with us. We hope this message has been a blessing to you today. We pray you too will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and be saved. If you would like to join us during our Sunday service, we meet at 10 a.m. at 110 Hunter's Village Drive in Irmo. If you would like to talk to a pastor or are in need of pastoral counseling, feel free to call us at 803-917-8792.